All right, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to an episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today to talk about a primer on tokenized securities with an excellent, excellent group. Guys, why don't you introduce yourselves, what you're up to, and why you're so excited about tokenized securities. Maybe, uh, maybe Stephen, you could start? Sure. So I'm Stephen McKeon. I'm a, a finance professor up at the University of Oregon, studying security tokens or tokenized securities. And uh, I'm excited for a variety of reasons we can, we can get into through the podcast here. Um, I guess the, the four central aspects uh, would be liquidity, automated compliance, interoperability, and design space. So we can talk through those issues. Excellent. Josh? Joshua Stein, the CEO of Harbor. Harbor was founded to tokenize traditional private securities. So think sharing a private company, sharing a private REIT, LP interest in a fund. Once you tokenize it, it allows you to unlock liquidity, which brings tremendous value to investors. You can trade 24-7, 365 around the globe with near instantaneous settlement, no counterparty risk. And once you do that and you tokenize, you can then unbundle and rebundle property interests in really interesting ways to unlock even more value. Awesome. Parker? Uh, I'm Parker Thompson. I am a seed stage investor and partner at AngelList. And I think I am the token, no pun intended, skeptic for the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get it out of my system. I'll stop now. Excellent. Okay. So first, let's let's zoom out for those who are, who are new to this concept. Two things. Why don't we define first what a security is? And two, you know, I think a lot of people, when we talk about tokenized securities, conflate the idea of utility tokens as security and, and tokenized securities. So perhaps, Josh, you can introduce both, both of those concepts. Sure. So I think the best mental model to have with tokenized securities is the transition from uh, snail mail to email with written communication. It used to be that I can remember this, that you typed out a letter, you press print, you put an envelope, you paid 50 cents, you waited a couple of days. And that seemed just fine. And then I remember distinctly in the early 90s where you suddenly started clicking send. The content of the written communication is the same, but by putting that electronic wrapper around it, you've now made it orders of magnitude faster, cheaper, and easier to send it. And so you had an explosion of communications and you were able to use email in circumstances in which you never use snail mail. No one in the history of the world ever mailed a letter to their buddy three cubicles down asking where are we going to lunch, but we send those emails every day. Similarly, when you tokenize a private security, the security interest is the same. You, what you now have is an electronic way, a way as easy as sending an email to trade that interest in a private read, a real estate investment trust, in a private company. But it doesn't change the fundamental nature of it. You still own a share in a company, a share in a real estate investment trust, an LP interest in the fund. All the same legal rights, duties, and obligations follow. Cool. Stephen, anything to add to that? Yeah, I guess I, I would just add that, you know, the underlying asset could be a variety of things, as Josh mentioned. So it could be uh, a real asset, like real estate. It could be shares of stock, so equity. It could be debt contracts or bonds. It could even be network assets. You know, one of the things we're learning from the SEC is that perhaps there's a path to, you know, so-called utility token status, uh, um, but probably not before. Or network launch. And so security tokens or tokenized securities would perhaps also include uh, network assets that need to raise capital, which would effectively be regulated as equity, even if the hope is that down the road, they can become adequately centralized and and be relieved from some of the regulatory burden. Stephen, why don't you elaborate on the four elements you brought up earlier in terms of why you think of this as, as so game-changing? Sure. So um, I guess starting with one thing to appreciate is that, you know, I view liquidity as a continuum, right? It's not binary. And we typically measure liquidity based on cost of trade. So we're not talking about a tokenized apartment building in Memphis being liquid like shares in Facebook or global currency market. We're talking about a tokenized apartment building in Memphis being more liquid than a comparable apartment building in Memphis where the ownership claims are documented on paper that sit in a file cabinet in a lawyer's office. Or an apartment building in Memphis that's fractionalized on a platform like Realty Shares, where the asset is locked in the platform and there's no secondary market. 
So we're really talking about incremental gains in liquidity. So as I've said many times on blogs and that type of thing, you know, this doesn't happen magically with a token. It requires an increase in market depth. So the question that we should be asking, the relevant question is, where does the increase in market depth come from? So I can come back to that in a moment when we talk about interoperability. The second aspect I talked about was automated compliance. For those who aren't aware, as aware, why does liquidity, why does liquidity matter so much? Increase liquidity. What does that do? Sure. So there is a concept called the liquidity uh, premium. Economists would say liquidity risk premium, uh, which you know, technically speaking, the idea is that if you hold an asset that's illiquid, it means that when you trade it, it's going to be costly to trade. And so that is going to have a negative impact on the price that you'd be willing to pay up front. So the idea is that, you know, with increased liquidity, you'll see enhancements to value. And I, was, I think a lot of these ideas kind of drive back down to that point. So touching on automated compliance, I'll, I'll let Josh speak to this point because I know this uh, harbors focus. I'll just say that compliance is one of the major frictions for tokenized securities, securities in general. And I'll just say that, you know, baking the compliance into the security offers some gains over the current system of maintaining compliance through uh, walled gardens. And I'm sure Josh can, can elaborate on that. I'll touch on interoperability. So this to me is the big one. You know, if you say we can fractionalize ownership, you know, without blockchain, that's correct, right? And again, I point to something like realty shares. I'm using realty shares as an example because I know partners and investors. So it's a useful model for this discussion. But whether it's realty shares or cadre or any of the competitors, the point is that uh, these markets are segmented, right? They're all silos. And, and why? It's because investor capture is the business model. So realty shares takes a 1% fee annually on all investments on their platform. They don't want the assets to leave their ecosystem. And that's not specific to realty shares. I'm just talking about that sort of model of fractionalized real estate ownership. So this is why you can't move your assets from realty shares to CrowdStreet or vice versa. They're, they're not interoperable by design. But the drawback to that model is that it means that each platform needs to develop the whole stack from issuance to compliance to exchange. And that's a really big lift for a single platform. And it's part of the reason why realty shares is only open to U.S. residents because, you know, to expand beyond the U.S., they have to build a huge compliance platform. It's why the assets are illiquid, right? Because they haven't built out an exchange for the secondary market. But there's a new generation of teams building tools for issuance, transfer, and custody of securities. And they're building on open source protocols like Ethereum, you know, perhaps using the ERC-20 standard. What this means is that a single team doesn't have to build the whole stack. You have competition to build the best exchange. You have competition to build the best wallet. You have competition to build the best compliance protocol. But because they're all building on common standards, all these pieces are interoperable. So if your token complies with ERC-20, you can move it from one wallet to another as long as they all support the standard. Now, protocol standards aren't unique to blockchain. HTTP is a standard protocol. FTP is a standard protocol. But blockchain offers us standard protocols that are designed for value transfer. So I think the hope is that by building on standards, we can create more integrated markets. And integrated markets should be deeper than segmented markets. And that, I think, is how it ties back to liquidity. So if successful, there's a strong incentive for issuers to migrate to the integrated markets because they're deeper. It's part of the reason why, like, Alibaba listed in the U.S. Uh, rather than Shanghai. So I think just to finish off, the last thing I'll touch on is design space. And I won't rehash, you know, the, the entire article I post on Medium, but I'll just say... Part of the promise of tokenized securities is that contractual features can be baked in, whether that's tenured voting or access rights or cross-asset referencing, like for collateral. And again, automated contractual rights can be done, you know, without a blockchain. We call them stored procedures, right? But something like cross-asset referencing only works with interoperability and it would be constrained by siloed or segmented markets. So I think those types of features are a little further away, but I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get there. Cool. Josh, what would you like to add to that? I just add a couple of, put a little bit of a gloss on, on some of what Stephen talked about. So I think what's really interesting is he talked about today when you list a public security, you're trying to find the exchange with, with the most depth, 
because it's fragmented. If I list in the New York Stock Exchange or I list in Shanghai, what's really interesting about some of the technologies that are out there, like say the ZeroX protocol, which is a decentralized exchange protocol, is you can actually have one worldwide pool of liquidity. So there's a, there's a stack that you need for an exchange. You have a tech stack to run the exchange, and that's a big lift. You have a jurisdictional or regulatory stack. Each jurisdiction has very complex requirements around operating that exchange to mean license and reporting. And then you also have a relationship stack. You need relationships with market makers, buyers, sellers, others providing liquidity and services. What's neat about 0x is it's not either or. You can have a 0x-based exchange in Singapore that has a buyer and a 0x-based exchange in the United States that has a seller. And they can, you can have one worldwide liquidity book and yet each exchange is specialized in the rules, relationships, and services that those different places need. And so I think that's something that's truly extraordinary about it. And you can have it with no custody, no counterparty risk, near instantaneous settlement. So I, I think Steve make a very good point in terms of silos. And then I would just, the point I'm simply making is the ways in which blockchain technology allows you to bust up silos in ways I think aren't intuitively obvious at first. The other is that I think you want to go back to the beginnings of modern capitalism. So it was a few hundred years ago where you had a bunch of Dutchmen and a few Englishmen meeting at the corners of Broad and Wall, and it transformed capitalism because they combined two ingredients together. They were trading these little chits and coffee houses that they called stock in this newfangled invention called a joint stock company. There were two things that got combined together. One is fractional ownership, and the other is liquidity. You have both of those in the public markets today, but you don't in the private markets. Private capital raising exceeds public raising. Does in the US, I was talking to a bank in Thailand yesterday. It's the same in Thailand. It's the same in Japan. It's the same in most places in the world because it's faster, cheaper, and easier to raise capital privately, but there's no liquidity. And so when you bring a modicum of liquidity to private securities, we think you're going to get the same transformational event. You're going to get more private capital raising. You're going to get a secondary market that doesn't exist today, and you're going to unlock a tremendous amount of value. Cool. Before we get into some of those points, I wanted to get, uh, let's also get deeper into Harbor. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about what the big vision, what you're trying to do with Harbor is, and what's the first product or first step you're, you're taking to get there. Sure. So I'll tell a little bit of the origin story because I think it'll go to the fundamental value prop of the company. So David Sachs was raising his first VC fund last year, and he wanted to tokenize it. And he realized there was no compliant way to do it, that if he tokenized it, he was going to run into significant problems down the road. And he had an aha moment. He said, there's a business here. And so that's when he formed, pulled in the co-founders, me and Bob and Arisa, and we got together and started putting it together. The f- fundamental basis of Harbor is to ensure the who, what, where of compliance every time that token representing a security trades. So the who, what, where is who the buyer and seller are, what the trade is, where it occurs. So who the buyer and seller are, are things like KYC, AML, and accredited investor status. Those are just table stakes. It's things like special rules around affiliates, control persons, think directors and officers of a company. The what of the trade are things like min-max investor numbers, limits on holdings or concentration, foreign ownership limits or requirements, holding periods. And then the where is, is it trading in a compliantly licensed exchange or peer-to-peer? And so um, a good example would be a private REIT. A private REIT has to have a minimum of 100 shareholders or it loses its tax treatment. Maximum 2,000 are sky go public. Non-US persons have to own less than 50%. Top five shareholders have to own less than 50%. So as a result, if you own a share in a private REIT today and you want to trade it, even if you find a buyer, you can't go sell it to them directly. You got to go to the private REIT manager and get their permission. There's a prohibition of transfer on that private security because in a paper world, the only way to control that is to go through the fund manager. So what Harbor does is we can enforce the who, what, where of compliance at the token level. That allows the fund manager to lift the prohibition on transfer and allow that security to trade the limits of liquidity under the applicable securities rules, the contractual rules the issuer imposes, and just the natural market conditions. Yeah. And talk about what you're, you're first focusing on real estate. Well, what's interesting is we didn't focus on real estate. Real estate focused on us. Look, our mantra is lock up the capital, not the investors. So tokenization, the promise is liquidity. And the, there's a trade-off between the pool of investors you'll accept on your cap table and liquidity you provide. If you will accept any legal investor around the world, that's a tremendous pool of liquidity. 
if you want to tightly control who can trade in and out, the liquidity is much less. That's a trade-off. So industries where you're sensitive to the cost of capital and relatively indifferent to the identity of your investor are ideal to tokenize. Real estate's one of those. It's capital intensive. It's very sensitive to the cost of capital. And most of them are interested in, in any legal investor. So what happens is real estate asset owners are coming to us. And if you think of someone who owns a trophy asset today, so I'll take this, I'll take a counterfactual, say the Empire State Building was interested in tokenization. If you own the Empire State Building outright and you wanted to raise money, you have a limited set of choices today. You can take on debt on the asset, and that can be unattractive for a number of reasons. You can sell the Empire State Building, but you want to do that. You love the Empire State Building. You just want to raise money. You can take on a minority investor, but normally you would take on one or two, a sovereign wealth fund, a pension fund. And what happens is if the investment is, if someone has to, if the person has to come up with several hundred million dollars, there's a very limited number of bidders worldwide. So the value you get is worse and they negotiate a bunch of control provisions. If instead you took 40% of the Empire State Building, you put it in a private real estate investment trust, you can now syndicate to 2,000 investors. So if you have $100 million you're trying to raise, that's a $50,000 unit of investment. That's far different than if you're looking to one to two people to cut a check for 50 or $100 million. So what the wider syndication and the tokenization allows is a lower unit of investment. So because you have more bidders for an asset, you get a better price. Because there's liquidity, you get a better price. So if the illiquidity discount is, say, 30% and you eliminate 10% of that, that means the fair market value of that security or asset should be 10% higher. A $50 million asset is worth $55 million. And the separate effect of getting more bidders means you get more value. So as a result, I don't have to give up control of the asset. I take on a diversified base of investors. Um, I get a much better price for the asset. They also are getting a fair price because they are getting an opportunity and value and liquidity that they didn't get before. So everybody wins. Where can you see yourself expanding from real estate? So I'd say our inbound interest is roughly 80% real estate, 20% other asset classes. I think I've talked to a couple of high-end art dealers. I think art's interesting because that's a transformative use. Art is not typically securitized today. Talked to a couple of VC funds and hedge funds. I've talked to a couple of owners of sports teams and sports teams become interesting because you can, not only are you unbundling ownership of the asset, but you can rebundle in property interests that are not normally associated with owning a security in ways that drive value to both sides of the exchange. And so we should spend some time on that at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my dream to be a part owner of a, of an NBA team. <laughs> and I heard that a minimum buy-in for the New Jersey net or Brooklyn nets rather is, is 25 million. So this would potentially. Yeah. So the same scenario of why would an owner of a trophy real estate asset want to take in a diversified base of minority investors? Let's take the 49ers. 49ers are worth roughly $3 billion. So if you want to raise funds on the 49ers today, you can sell the 49ers, but that sucks. You want to own the 49ers. Yeah. You can raise debt on the asset, but you don't want to, you don't want to take on debt. You can take on a minority investor. So you, you can sell 10% of the 49ers to somebody. That's $300 million. How many people can write that check? Even if you syndicate to 30 people, that's a $10 million check each. I mean, that's incredible. But now imagine I issue one or two classes of stock. Say it's one class of stock, 2,000 shareholders. What's 300 million divided by 2,000? I think it's 150,000. Now, how many people would write a check for $150,000 to own a piece of the 49ers and a real piece of the equity with an income stream off of it? Lots of people yeah. would. There's Because there's not just an economic value. There's an emotive value. I own a piece of the 49ers. So the owner of 49ers should get a better price for that slice of the 49ers. And it's a diversified group of investors. It's not people negotiating onerous control provisions. It's people that want to be a part of the 49ers, not interfere with the operation of the 49ers. Now bundle in rights that don't normally associated with owning a security. Because in the blockchain, you will you can always know who your owners are, which you can't do in the public markets. So now maybe I want to say, hey, if you own a piece of equity in the 49ers, you own a tokenized share, you get first dibs on season tickets. Right. Or we have a meet the players day a couple times a year where you get with this limited group to meet the players. Now you're going to get a better price because the fans that are buying the shares are getting all these rights that have value. 
and you're driving fan engagement. They're going to be rabid fans. And so the 49ers don't need to do it. It would be interesting. But think of like WNBA teams. Right. Think about minor league baseball teams. Think about all uh, professional soccer teams, folks where driving fan engagement and raising capital is really important to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a transformative use case that you cannot do today in paper on a practical level. You could. You could imagine a way in which you did this all on paper and you tried to syndicate to 2,000 people and you tried to keep track of it. But it's very difficult and cumbersome to do. It's like trying to mail a letter to ask somebody where we're going to lunch. There's a reason why it just doesn't happen today. And and lastly, the fine art example, just to play that a little bit, that's interesting because a piece of art might be worth, I don't know, millions of dollars, but only 10 people in the world may want to pay pay that price and it might be too hard to find them. And now if you fractionalize it, you can have more market depth depth there? Or why is the fine art example interesting? So fine art is a great example. A, it's not securitized today for a number of reasons. B is you're actually disaggregating two different rights. There's the right to exhibit the work and there's the right to the capital appreciation when the work is sold. Those go together today. I buy the Van Gogh. I've got it no matter what. But if you disaggregate the two, backing up, there's two ways to make money in in finance. You can bundle or you can unbundle. Mm -hmm. You make more money if you do both. So, Because that's how you unlock value is Mm -hmm. by aligning what people value and want to pay for. So think of museums. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars of what's working capital locked up on their walls. They want the right to exhibit the artwork. They don't want the right to the capital appreciation when it changes hands, which it does occasionally. Not often, but it does. So now suppose in which I've got a Monet. The value of the Monet for both the right to exhibit it and the right to the capital appreciation is, say, $40 million. But now let's say just the rights to the capital appreciation, which is what I'm tokenizing, let's say it's worth half. That's $20 million. If I take on 100 investors, that's $200,000 each. How many investors want to own a piece of Monet? There's an economic value there. By the way, fine art, I was told, is correlated 0.08 with the S&P 500. So it actually makes a very diversified investment play. So there's an investment thesis there. There's also an emotive appeal that has independent value, right? right that's going to price. So now the museum, instead of killing themselves to raise $1,000 a head at some gala, is now raising a ton of money off of artwork that's sitting on their shelves for property rights that they don't value, and they're transferring it to people who do value it. And it's liquid, which is important. So now I've tokenized that Monet. Now imagine a world in which I tokenize a series of Monets. I can create a fund that owns 10% of each Monet. I now have a Monet fund. Mm -hmm. I now do the same for Matisse. I can create a French Impressionist fund. And then there are great technologies out there like DYDX, DYDX allows you to create a levered long or short position on any ERC-20 token. So now I can go long French Impressionist, short modern art. Right. That's amazing. I mean, no, you can't do that today. The question I'm asking while winking at Parker a little bit is why are rappers all over this? I mean, we're or musicians. Like, why are they? are. We've talked to people okay. who own recording catalogs. Okay. So, so what's interesting is, is the tokenization is just electronic. So you're doing the same things you can do today, but because it's not in paper, it's faster, cheaper, easier. That's the sort of highest level way to think about it. So today, recording catalogs are securitized. Bowie bonds back in the day were the first one. Mm-hmm. Eminem securitized his recordings. Wow. My thesis would be is that by tokenizing and by using a software platform that allows you to onboard the investors and set up the investment in a more streamlined fashion, it's faster, cheaper, easier. Therefore, you can unbundle down to smaller components. So rather than having to tokenize an entire record catalog for Eminem, tokenize an album. Or tokenize a song. I own a piece of eight mile. And yet again, that would be me. My daughter would go for Katy Perry. I would short carry Katy Perry. I would go long Eminem. And fundamentally, I would go long Rush, Jimi Hendrix, and a bunch of other people that probably listeners of this podcast don't know any day of the week. Yes, exactly. I would go long Sammy Hagar before he joined Van Halen. I would short Van Hagar. Okay. Um, But in any event... Again, there's an emotive value, better price for the asset. People can align with the value that they want. Awesome. Parker, I want to transition to you a little bit. You're a crypto investor, also real estate investor, among other, other sectors. At the same time, you have some, you have some, there's some things that interest you and some questions you have. Yeah. So I think these are pretty interesting examples of things that should be securitized, right? So I think Harbor's working on some interesting problems. I think it might be helpful to just take a step back and talk about crypto as a technology, because I think that helps frame how we think about what it's good for, what it's not good for, and how it meshes with 
the regulatory context and economics of securitizing assets, right? So I, I think the major properties of the blockchain, right, which are relevant to this discussion are provability of ownership, right, and scarcity, right? I mean, we kind of talk about those generally as interesting and unique properties of this new technology, right? So the question then is, well, what are those things good for, right? We've got a hammer. What are nails and what are screws, right? So when I think about securitization of assets, I think about this property of, you know, what is scarcity and provability going to be good for? So to pick an example, right? If I have a crypto kitty, okay, well, I own it. I can prove that I own it. It exists solely on the blockchain and you can't copy it, right? So I can prove that I own it and I can prove that it's scarce, right? But it exists just as a concept, right? And, and that's true of Bitcoin as well, right? If I have a Bitcoin, I know just proof by existence, right? I have the private key. I have this Bitcoin. So I think to me, those are both pretty interesting use cases, right? Bitcoin is gold and that's fine. People want gold. Crypto kitties are fun and people want fun things. Okay, great. You know, whether you think those are $10 billion opportunities or trillion or whatever, whatever, who cares? Now, when you look at securitizing assets, right? And I think actually real estate is probably the smartest place to start for reasons we could talk about, but there's something a little bit different there, right? Which is if you securitize your house, let's say, and you probably wouldn't start there, but let's, yeah. let's say you did. And I said, great, I want to buy 10% of your house, right? Okay, well, what is ownership of your house really? It's not a digital concept, right? It's not a concept in cryptography, right? It's, it's a legal concept. You have a house, you live in America, we have some laws. Those laws say that you own the house and maybe there's a title down at the courthouse or I mean, actually, you, you know, you could probably get into more detail <laughs> on exactly how that works today. But so let's imagine you take these keys and you get these tokens that represent some ownership in this home. And then, you know, I come along and I hack your computer and take those tokens, right? Okay, well, so I, I have the tokens, but there's down at the courthouse, there's this paper that says some entity owns this thing, right? And so we have a set of challenges, and I'd sort of present them that way, because I'm sure you guys have been thinking about them, where once the token is an abstraction as opposed to something that exists and is provably self-contained, right? Once it's an abstraction, you can run into these situations where there's a disconnect between ownership of the token and ownership of the asset, and we then presumably have to revert to some sort of legal system to actually resolve that conflict, right? So I think that implies certain scenarios which which we should at least consider, right? So for example, if a court says that you have the tokens, but I own the asset, we could resolve that by forcing you to give me those tokens. And maybe you say, well, I'm just not going to, and I'm going to sell them to some Russian hacker. <laughs> or we could say, well, okay, well, then whoever maintains the blockchain needs to make it mutable, which now we're revisiting one of the core principles, which is fine, but we're revisiting one of the core principles of blockchain. So I think that's one challenge, right? This abstraction, this disconnect between the actual physical world and jurisdiction and what we're trying to do with this database, right? If you want to think about the blockchain in that way, presents a challenge. I think another big challenge that I'd be interested in talking through with these guys, and real estate is a great place to start, right? And the reason I think that's a great place to be focused on liquidity, the reason I think Realty Shares makes a ton of sense and some of these other marketplaces, um, Art may as well actually, is... These are markets where it's relatively easy to determine a fair price for the asset, right? So if I want to buy a share of a house in LA, sight unseen, I can get a lot of data that allows me to approximate the price of that house, right? And that might, for example, not be true of an early stage startup or a venture fund. I think these kinds of assets are going to be much more challenging to securitize in general, whether or not we're talking about the blockchain, right? Because, for example, if you have a venture fund and it has a bunch of positions and a bunch of private companies, unlike public companies where we have a significant regulatory framework and disclosures and there's a high cost of overhead, right? Like that exists so that buyers and sellers can find a price. And just step back for a second yeah. for those who may not know, what exactly does it mean to securitize something? So you guys may want to give a more precise definition. In my mind, let's just give an example, right? Let's say I have a venture fund. I raise $100 million. I invest in a bunch of companies, right? 
Great. Well, we started with $100 million. We know where we started. Maybe those were good investments. Maybe they weren't, right? But I disclosed to my LPs how I'm marking those investments, right? There's some discretion. There's some, some ways people do this. And that portfolio grows or shrinks in value, right? So... The problem with securitizing this asset, so I, I could say, okay, I'm going to make, you know, 100 million shares. So day one, I've got $100 million in the bank. There's 100 million shares. You can buy, you know, $10 of my fund and, and hopefully we do well together, right? That's what it means to securitize um, it. So very basically, is that? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, so I think when we talk about liquidity of that fund investment, um, and the reason I believe it, it's probably going to be pretty challenging to securitize venture funds specifically is... You know, I invest in your company. You're a private company. You're, let's say, you're Lime, right? So I've seen the investor deck for Lime. I know what their unit economics are. That's not public information. And they don't want it to be public information, right? So if you're an investor in my fund and I have a position in Lime, I'm just not going to tell you what their unit economics are or they're not going to take my money, right? So now you have this problem, which is, you know that I'm invested in Lime, but you actually don't know what that asset is worth, right? And you might actually not know all of the investments that I've made because some are stealth and so on and so forth, right? So I would suggest that one of the things we should talk about when we talk about liquidity is not just the availability to buy an asset, but the availability of buyers and sellers to have relatively symmetric information around how to price those assets, right? And I think for a lot of assets you run into a problem where you either have asymmetric information, right? So I, as a person running a fund, know so much more about it than you as someone who has a piece of my fund that I'm always going to sell when it makes more sense, sell when it's overvalued and buy when it's undervalued, right? And you've you've seen a couple, uh, I can think of at least one venture fund that structured itself this way. And I I worry for them that the challenges, there are going to be some legal challenges later. So I think liquidity is not just a function of a global market, which I think is really interesting, right? The more people we can get into these things, certainly uh, we, we should see the prices go up and we should see better, more dynamic marketplace, right? But you need that information along with it. And then you need to think through sort of the regulatory informa- regulatory implications. So let me maybe stop there if you want to chip in on that or if you want to dig yeah. in. I would jump in real quickly just on this information. Sure, please. It is definitely, but I agree... Uh, with Parker on that and, and the idea. What, I guess what I would add is that this already exists in all kinds of securities, right? And so even if you look, look at public equity, you've got tons of information asymmetry between the management team, which can buy and sell their own securities versus the investors. And so what the investors do is they take signals, right? And so when you see, uh, it's one of the reasons why, so like the, the management team can issue stock, right? So that's essentially selling the security. They can mm-hmm. also repurchase stock. So it's part of the reason why when you see a management team announce an issuance of equity, you'll often see a drop in the price of equity because investors will infer that they know something more, right? So they, they, I would say that information asymmetry is definitely an issue, but it's already present all the way through markets um, in virtually all markets. And so I don't think that information asymmetry alone precludes tokenization necessarily. That's just sort of a that's a bigger issue between any time you've got more informed and less informed parties, which is already a feature of securities markets today. Yeah, and to be clear, I think I, I would not challenge the premise that we can securitize these things on the blockchain. I think the more interesting question is just where are the specific benefits and where are the specific challenges? So what does the architecture look like long term? For example, with this question of, well, if I can steal tokens... I think this is just something that um, you guys will have to have to address in your product. And it would be really interesting to hear how you think about that problem, right? Yeah, other, so let, yeah. let's address that. So security is actually a great question. So a couple of things. One is, is that I'll talk a little about the mitigation steps or the steps we take there. But fundamentally, you want to evaluate what's the risk. It's very different for a cryptocurrency than it is for a tokenized security. In a cryptocurrency, the token is the asset. If someone steals your Bitcoin... You just lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. If someone steals, quote unquote, your security token, the asset is still there. The real estate hasn't gone anywhere. The operating company hasn't gone anywhere. All that's happened is on the books and records of the corporation where it used to say Josh 50 shares, it now says Josh zero shares. And it says David plus 50 shares. So one is, is we have a record. We know where it's gone. 
and the asset is a gone. So what we need to do is be able to amend the ownership if it was wrongfully taken. Mm -hmm. And that you came up with a great example. A court orders it. There's a divorce and it orders Mm -hmm. shares split or there's a fraudulent conveyance and orders it going back. Companies have a legal obligation to be able to control their cap table, a record of ownership of who owns Mm -hmm. what. So in our technology, we do have the ability to set arbitrary values and to move tokens around. So it is mutable blockchain. Yeah, it's mutable. It has to be. So it's now we use sort of multi-sig and a whole bunch of safeguards. So it's not just Harbor. It's really the issuer. Mm -hmm. Um, But it happens. Somebody's going to steal some If if a court says, Josh, give 25 of your shares to David, you have to be able to amend the books and records of the corporation and give 25 shares to David. Mm -hmm. That's a legal obligation. But I think if you step back, you know, there's an interesting issue of how is trust the same and different when you tokenize the securities compared to a cryptocurrency some th- or, or the world today. Some things are different. Some things are the same. So the underlying trust you have to have, in, in, and I, let me think of in terms of investment, ownership, and um, liquidity. In terms of the investment, nothing changes by adding the word crypto. You got to understand the investment you're making. Mm-hmm. You are entrusting money to an enterprise, a common enterprise with the expectation of profit based off the efforts of others. It's a definition of a security. And so you have to do your due diligence and you're trusting that person. If they run away with your money or they're terrible managers, you're losing money. Just because you have the blockchain, it doesn't change that. Your record of ownership becomes better because you don't have the double counting problem. And that's the blockchain is fundamentally about the recording and transference of ownership of anything. And so now like a good example is Dole Foods. Uh, They were public going private a couple of years ago. There's a big court case about it. I don't remember the exact numbers, but roughly Dole thought they had 34 million shares outstanding. Shareholders thought they had 46 million shares because you had multiple sets of books. Dole had outsourced to DCCC. All these broker had, brokers had accounts. Those had subbroker accounts. Then you had the individual accounts. Similar things happen with private companies all the time today. Their cap tables are always messed up. This employee exercised their option, but we forgot to record it. And this one didn't. And that one signed the documents, but didn't pay. And so it's always messed up. So ownership, record of ownership is much better with the blockchain. I know the number of shares isn't double counted. That smart contract well, so this has 2,000 shares, and I can see that on the blockchain, and I can see my ownership. The last point, though, is liquidity. This is where the blockchain is transformational. Today, if I have to trade that security, I have to find you. We have to create an intermediary to custody funds and shares, or I have to hand it to you and exhibit trust. It's a big dance that requires lawyers and brokers, and it's incredibly expensive. On the blockchain, in these decentralized exchanges that are springing up around the world, buyer and seller don't need to know each other. They can transact 24-7, 365 around the globe with near instantaneous settlement and no counterparty risk. The blockchain and only the blockchain can do that. So, I mean, the Dole example is one I I see a lot, right? People Mm -hmm. who use that as an example. And I guess that comes back to my um, point about this abstraction, which is, if that company enters into a contract with a third party that uh, implies that new securities are created, right? You end up with this disconnect between what the database says, a system of record, and, or rather, you end up with question about what the system of record is, right? So if I enter into a contract, we create new shares, that's not reflected on the blockchain. Ultimately, the court says, well, no, you entered into this contract two years ago. That seems like exactly the dual problem. And I think that's where, you know, Bitcoin works because it's it's self-contained, right? Whereas I think where I see a lot of to give it to give a completely different example that I think illustrates this point, there's folks trying to use the blockchain to do chain of custody, right? So here's our supply chain and we're not having, you know, twelve year olds making shoes and sweatshops, right? As though the blockchain can solve that problem. And it, it just strikes me that we end up in that case with well, the factory can just put the wrong data into the immutable. Yeah, but see, the problem is, is you're comparing it to an ideal where everything's perfect and therefore blockchain doesn't work because it doesn't make it perfect. Blockchain makes it a lot better. So I was involved in a defense contractor that did a lot of import and export and the paperwork is brutal. Uh People can forge paperwork after the fact every step of the way. The fact that it's on the blockchain means, yeah, somebody can do a fraudulent step in one place, but you got to do it at the time. And you can't unwind that record later. It just makes it a lot harder. It's not that you can't be fraudulent. That makes it a lot harder. You have to be a lot better at the fraud and have a lot more foresight. It's sort of like with Bitcoin, right? With a recent example, the Mueller indictments. It's not that Bitcoin is truly anonymous or that it's truly transparent. 
But unlike cash, there is a record there. And when someone goes and breaks the code and starts to follow the record, it actually is a better record of what's going on. Similarly, for, for securities, when you examine those three different buckets, the levels of trust, yeah, tokenization, the use of the blockchain doesn't solve every problem, but it makes certain problems a lot better. It makes liquidity a lot better. On your example of Dole Foods, yes, if a company is issuing other shares of the same class and not telling investors, then you have a huge problem. But if a company puts an entire class of shares on the blockchain, say a private REIT, 2,000 shares, issues 2,000 tokens, that's smart contracts on the blockchain, as long as they do what they said they do, then you don't have the problem mm-hmm. of the cap table being all messed up. In the Dole Foods case, wasn't the fact that Dole Foods was issuing shares that DTC didn't know about. That case was the problem of everyone having a different set of records. DTCC managed the cap table for Dole Foods, but public companies don't know who their shareholders are. So Dole Foods only knew DTCC was a shareholder. DTCC wasn't in contact with the individual shareholders. They're in contact with broker dealers, prime brokers, and others who have large accounts. And then those have sub-accounts. And then those sub-accounts have individual investor accounts. Each step of the way is a separate set of books that have to be reconciled, and those always drift apart. And that's what the blockchain was invented for, one source of truth. So you have a record of trades. It is immutable. Each record of the trade is immutable. That doesn't change. What it means is, though, is who's the authority to act to add the next record? So in a certain sense, unlike with Bitcoin, you are subject to a court order that orders your shares transferred. But unlike the world of today, you can see the record of ownership, and it is in an immutable chain where everyone can see the history of it in a way that you can't today. Yeah. So is the crux of, of any difference of opinion on this specific topic, let's use the venture fund example, that you just say, hey, it doesn't solve all the problems, namely asymmetric information that Parker brought up, but it has all these benefits you know, that we didn't have prior and is an improvement. And, and Parker, you think perhaps, not to put words in your mouth, that it may present new challenges that weren't there prior or maybe it's overstretching. Is it overreaching? Well, I think it, I mean, I think it's a great point to say, look, we don't have to solve all problems to solve some problems. I think where, where I'd be curious to hear how you guys are thinking about it is um, you've made the claim that this is going to be faster, cheaper, better, right? Like mm-hmm. e- email to snail mail and all of the sort of activities you're talking about make a ton of sense, right? Let's build a marketplace. Let's do KYC. Let's be compliant. Let's securitize real estate. Let's securitize art and so on and so forth. I'd be curious getting into some details because I honestly don't understand when you do all of these things, right? When you go and you enforce all of these these uh, regulatory constraints, how does that end up doing it with a lower cost structure than, for example, a Realty Shares? Not to pick on them, we could talk about someone else. Yeah. As you're securitizing buildings. Yeah, so a good example. So I think at the heart of your question is how is doing it on the blockchain different than Say someone else that just has yeah, a SaaS. An Oracle database. Yeah. Like why not it's use great. an Oracle database? So it's the point Stephen made about the tech stack. And then I would actually add the regulatory stack and the relationship stack. So if you do it all yourself on your SaaS platform, you have to do the whole stack. You have to do custody. You have to do the issuance. You have to worry about the compliance. You got to take care of all the aspects of an exchange, which each of those is a non-trivial lift. Today in the financial industry, those are specialized companies that do all that. The New York Stock Exchange is not the investment banker, is not is not generally not the custodian. There are all these different services. So that's a full tech stack you have to do. Then there's a whole relationship stack. So exchanges need relationships with market makers and prime brokers and others who provide liquidity. Issuing platforms, investment bankers have to have relationships with the people raising capital, some of the distribution networks, analysts to analyze and do due diligence. In our ecosystem, in the blockchain, you need wall providers equivalent to custodians. You need a whole host of other folks. So what happens is, is with the ERC-20 common standard, you can disaggregate all those. People can specialize just in the exchange, just in the custodianship. And then if you are one SaaS platform, you then have to conform to each jurisdiction. You have to replicate the regulatory stack, which the licensing to be an ATS is brutal. Don't you have to do that as well? I mean, to use your example of the Empire State Building, right? So it exists within a jurisdiction. It's in New York City. It's in New York State. It's in the US, right? So if you're going to securitize that uh, property, mm-hmm. you need to comply, be compliant with all the laws of those jurisdictions, right? But each step is different though. So think of an exchange that once the Empire State Building portion has been tokenized, it can trade in Singapore on a Singapore exchange that takes ERC-20 tokens that understands Singapore laws, is licensed in Singapore, knows Singapore broker-dealers and market makers and investors. 
right? If I am just one SaaS platform in the U.S., how do I replicate all of that? Well, so you give a good example, which is some assets have jurisdictional ownership requirements, right? I'm not thinking of the asset. I'm thinking the different steps in the whole life cycle of capital formation and liquidity. That's my point is each one of those steps from forming the capital, i.e. doing the capital raise, that's investment banking, it's tokenization, it's other aspects like that, to providing for the liquidity, running an exchange, the custody of assets, the provision of uh, tax services and audit services. There are specialized firms springing up by jurisdiction around the world to do all that in the Ethereum ecosystem. It's like an internet standard. I remember when email was specific to just my college. They called it Blitzmail. You could only email people on campus. No one ever used it. We just left voicemails. And then I went overseas for a few years. I come back and suddenly everybody's emailing each other. And why? Because all of a sudden there was Yahoo Mail and all these other mail systems where you could email each other. We were all on a common protocol. Once you're on an ERC-20 protocol, people can specialize out by function, by jurisdiction, by asset class. So for example, I think exchanges are going to start to specialize out by different types of securities and asset classes. Real estate shares in private REIT that are 25 grand each are going to require different services and trade far differently than say lever longs and shorts on baskets of properties where it's much more about the investment thesis and much less about the uh, specific due diligence on that asset versus tokenized art. So all of this is what I'm saying is, is there's a stack. There's a tech stack, a relationship stack, a business expertise stack, a regulatory stack. Each step in the chain of the life cycle of a security by jurisdiction and for one place to think it's going to do it all worldwide, it just doesn't exist today. And that, and there's a reason why people aren't able to do it today. And so that's why you want a common standard. The best thing about the Ethereum blockchain, in addition to the blockchain technology and the trustless nature of the exchange of ownership, is the fact that it's non-permission. That if I set up my company on the Ethereum ecosystem, no other entity can go shut me down. It's not like I'm on a private. So if I had a private SaaS platform... And I wanted to invite others to develop on it. In addition to having to track them, they have enterprise risk because I can kick them out. I guess I'm not clear about questions like like to have a specific regulatory constraint, right? Percent of ownership by foreign buyers, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not clear how that specific constraint has. We have costs associated with that today, right? I have to do KYC. I have to know who you are. I have to keep track of all these things. How do you make that cheaper? In this, in this ecosystem. The way you make it cheaper is because now it's programmed in at the token level. Whereas today in private securities, what you have is you own a share in a private REIT and it says you may not transfer that share. So you have to go to the manager of the REIT and you say, mother, may I, may I please sell this? And if they like you, they'll go email. That's not true in a public REIT though, right? No. So I'm talking about private securities. Public markets work great today. The use of the blockchain can provide incremental administrative savings and efficiencies, but it's not transformational because today public markets have liquidity. Where we're focused at Harbor is how do we unlock liquidity for private securities that today exist only on paper and have virtually no liquidity. So what is that cost then of like, so for example, I need to prove that you're a U.S. citizen, right? Well, you have to go and, you know, send somebody your tax forms, have your audit or have your mm-hmm. accountant certify that you're accredited and U.S. citizen and whatnot, Right. I guess I'm not clear if that's if that's the process today. Mm-hmm. It seems like you still need that exact same process to be compliant with the regulation in the blockchain world. So I'm not clear what the reduced you cost do, is. Because, but there's a different process to doing that, vetting investors for the issuance of the capital, then the exchange later. So raising capital is a very different function from secondary liquidity later. In the real world today, those firms specialize out. And they specialize out by function and jurisdiction and asset classes. So it's not, even in the U.S., it's not one exchange to rule them all. You have the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, Chicago Board of Exchange. And then you've got all those exchanges overseas, and they specialize out by asset classes. So my point simply is, if you want to be one SaaS platform in one jurisdiction that's going to do all those different functions for the entire world, it doesn't work. Those are all regulatory stacks, tech stacks, relationship stacks that are themselves specialized businesses today with a huge lift. By using a common interoperable standard like ERC-20, it allows all these different companies to spring up and interact on that common standard. Whereas if you do it all on one SaaS platform, one company's got to do it all, and that's not practicable. Zooming out a little bit, how do you expect in the next, I don't know, three to five years, 
the landscape of tokenized securities to evolve from a, in terms of what types of products we, we might see out there, what types of companies like Harbor in terms of the legal and regulatory landscape. What do, what do you, how do you expect it to change in the next few years? Sure. I'll take the last one first and then move back. The legal regulatory landscape, I don't think it changes for tokenized securities. Obviously, there's a, some law of flux around protocol tokens and, and cryptocurrencies, but fundamentally, they're doesn't need to be any change in the rules around private securities to tokenize them. You're just saying it's the written communication. The content of the security interest is the same. Only now you have an electronic wrapper that makes it faster, cheaper, easier. And what Harbor does is we take all these rules that today are honored only in the breach. If you're violating them, no one knows until there's a problem down the road. And instead, we're able to enforce many of them ex ante. And if there is a problem down the road where a regulator needs to enforce between the blockchain and Harbor's records, they have a perfect record of who owned what when. So enforcement becomes easier ex post. Um, in terms of how the market develops, I think it's going to be the usual bell-shaped curve of tech adoption. Certainly the experience with crypto to date is that's all happening on compressed timeframes. And I think it'll be similar, but there will be a tech adoption curve. That if you think of investors, many of them are in small, think smaller institutions to whom this would be very valuable liquidity, the ability to invest in smaller units. They have a staff that can get on top of the technology and not be too fearful. If you think of your average individual investor, they're going to be 50 to 70 years old. That's going to take time for them to climb a tech adoption curve. The tech's going to have to become easier to use and get more widespread adoption. I mean, you know, my folks today still won't buy anything online because they don't want to put their credit card on the internet. So. They're on that back hat slope of the tech adoption curve. So give them some Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll send them some Bitcoin. But what's interesting <laughs> to me though was how quickly the adoption of say cryptocurrencies happened. Obviously it was a speculative mania that drove that, but it did drive adoption and familiarity with the technology. But I mean, there were Facebook groups of, you know, people I knew from 25 years ago from the <laughs> military who were suddenly debating Litecoin versus Bitcoin. <laughs> and that's when I first started to notice it. And so I, it's going to be just like the adoption of the internet. We're in the dial-up. Right. This is not my analogy. Yeah. I've heard it, but we're in the dial-up modem days. And right now, yeah. when you try and tokenize securities and transact them, it's going to be bzz, bing, bing, yeah. bing, bing, bing. Um, but it's going to get better much more quickly than the yeah. internet and it's going to spread much more rapidly. And so I think for early people, you have that classic first adopters. First adopters get a first mover advantage, but then they got to deal with the sort of nascent nature of this and deal with the sort of inconveniences that come along the way. Let's give some advice to entrepreneurs who are listening to this and looking to build companies in this space broadly or anything having to do with tokenized securities. And maybe we can do that in the context of, let's say we were in terms of what are good ideas out there. Let's say we were, we're a fund and we're specifically focused on investing in companies like Harbor or companies that are doing something within the tokenized security space. Where do any of you three believe that there are opportunities out there that are underexplored right now or that you would like to see talented entrepreneurs, you know, take a big swing at? I'll start with just one quick example, which is, you know, if you look at the way real estate assets work today, you've often got an asset manager. And my guess is that the majority of those real estate asset managers are not necessarily crypto savvy. And so I think as you start to see assets uh, tokenized, you're going to need to have asset managers rise up in tandem that are comfortable in these markets that are comfortable, you know, pushing distributions in the form of stable points, for example, or, or whatever else. And so I think, again, I'm not sure this is necessarily a venture play, but I think you're going to have to see a lot of the professional services we see in this sort of traditional world um, start map over to this, this new world of tokenized securities. Cool. I, I would echo Stephen. I mean, Things like cap table management systems, things like the ability to generate tax filings, 1099s, K1s, cap table management tools, ability to distribute dividends. All of those are things that with the blockchain and public nature of the record become incredibly powerful to provide that are very difficult and inefficient today, but are also very necessary. So I'll say in general, I think these marketplaces are super interesting, whether you believe that the blockchain is the underlying technology that's going to drive them or not. Hopefully, we see more and more of these, right? It'd be great to see an art marketplace. It'd be great to see more um, liquidity in the real estate side. So these are just good areas. I think with respect to blockchain, I try to focus on what I think the core 
properties are that are unique? And then what are the ways in which entrepreneurs are going to capture value in these ecosystems or deliver and then capture, right? So I think where I'm maybe more contrarian is I think most of the things people are doing in some way are good ideas, but we're approaching it in just nutso ways right now. So for let's talk about utility tokens because I think that's the most nutso. You know, we often talk about the analogy between SMTP and, and these protocols, right? And so I think that the way in which we're thinking about it in a, just a nutso way right now, for example, is you do a big ICO and you sell 200 million bucks worth of tokens with these use cases that are logically going to be very high velocity at scale, right? So if you build out like fundamentals models, which is really what I'm interested in, I think today everybody's speculating on these tokens, but the value doesn't accrue in these traditional protocol networks to the, to the protocol, right? It accrues to um, the application, right? So I think what we're seeing right now is a speculative mania around infrastructure that's ultimately going to go to zero. So if I were trying to build a token network, I would think about a strategy where I assume that's the case. And I try to build Gmail, not SMTP. So I might have to build SMTP because it doesn't exist mm -hmm. to build Gmail. But I think that we're not thinking in a disruptive enough way, right? If you truly believe that this technology is disruptive, the wrong way to think about it is we're going to go and kill the incumbent and have a market cap that's just as big as that incumbent. That's just a stupid way to think about the future, right? right? We should really look at open source software as an analogy, right? And so there's this great quote by the former CEO of um, MySQL who said, look, the database is a, I think he said $9 billion market. I'm going to make it a $3 billion market and take half that, right? Like mm -hmm. that's what disruption really looks like. And that's the real opportunity here, right? So go build a file storage coin, right? But don't assume that the market cap of your file storage coin is going to be Dropbox plus Face or plus Box plus something, yada, yada, yada down the line, right? Assume that file storage will basically go to zero, which is awesome, right? That's just great surplus for everyone. And you're going to be one of the players sitting on top of this open ecosystem, capturing a lot of value at the user interface layer, interacting with customers, people using this thing, right? Providing yep. services. So that's less sexy because it's like, well, shoot, we, you know, we went after a $10 billion <laughs> market and we made it 20 million. But I think logically, like that's right. the future of um, this technology if it's useful. If all it does is, Make a really inefficient database that allows us to kind of half-ass compete with centralized services that could uh, innovate more quickly. We, we haven't really done anything interesting. And so I, I guess I'm really interested in seeing an entrepreneur's drop bombs into markets, yep. not sort of think about ways to capture rents. And I think one of the real bugs in this ecosystem, right? I, I think about scarcity is both what makes this thing interesting, but the mania around it, yeah. you know, has this real negative, right? We're 10 years into this thing and nothing's been built that matters, you know, like we got gold. So what? Yep. That is a function of this mania that is distracting from the interesting properties of this technology. And I just love to see entrepreneurs who are much more focused on what are the fundamentally novel things we can do to completely obviate these in incumbents and generate consumer surplus. It's a nice uh, preview to our future episode on utility tokens. <laughs> Although you buried the lead. <laughs> that was, uh, was awesome. Cool. So this has been a fantastic episode, guys. In closing, any uh, any plugs? Where can people follow you uh, online, Parker, or learn uh, about what you're thinking about? I am PT on Twitter, and you find me there. Uh, PT on Medium as well, and I've written some posts on security tokens and some of these valuation models and whatnot that you know, read. Tell me I'm wrong. Go awesome. find me. Excellent. Uh, Steven, uh, how about you? Where can people follow you online and, and what should people look out for from on your end? Yeah, I post on Medium from time to time. Uh, I think the handle is SB McKeon. Also, SB McKeon on Twitter. I mostly use Twitter to just um, distribute content I'm posting uh, on Medium, but, you know, really primarily focused on uh, security tokens, but also interested in a lot of the stuff Parker touched on in terms of valuation of some of these protocol networks uh, just because as a finance professor I teach valuation so it's uh, it's something that's always intrigued me so those are really the topics on which I'm going to be posting material and so yeah Medium and Twitter would be the spot 
Josh, with, with Harbor, you, you guys are the leading company in the space, perhaps right now. You've raised $40 million from Founders Fund and other, you know, world-class firms. Where can people follow along in Harbor's progress, progress and what should they be on the lookout for in the, in the near term? Harbor.com. We also have a Telegram channel and the company's got a Twitter and a Medium channel. I think we're focused now on getting to market. We've got a client pipeline and we're just finishing the build out and all the hard detail work. It's a lot like putting together a building, framing it is really fast and exciting. And then it's all the finished work. That's the hard part. Um, so look for us to come to market soon. And you guys are not going to tokenize, correct? Or- we have no plans to issue our own ICO or protocol yeah. token. I understand the reservations on it. I'm not sure how it pans out or how it works with different business models. I think at this point we don't plan on it. Cool. Guys, I think this might be the best conversations tokenized securities in the podcast world thus far. You guys have done a great job. Thank you for, for coming along. Thanks so much, Eric. Yeah. Thank you. This is a ton of fun. Appreciate it, guys.